0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. Creswell Crags is a limestone gorge running east to west on the border of Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire in England. Each side of it is peppered with caves and until earlier this year, the site was most famous for spectacular cave art made by hunter-gatherers many thousands of years ago. A recent discovery has added a fascinating aspect to the history of the site however. What was thought to be Victorian graffiti turned out instead to be a vast array of protective marks or witch marks dating back to the 17th century. It is thought that people would usually be making these to ward off evil and prevent malevolent forces gaining access to their world. My guest for this episode is Alison Fern, one of the archaeologists involved in deciphering this incredible discovery. We talked about the history of the protective marks, why the cave at Creswell is so important, and what might have been going on to cause such a remarkable display of superstition. Alison, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Rick, how are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. It's really great to have you on. Um, when the, the story Broke about a month ago about what had been found at Creswell. I was, it was something I really wanted to talk about on on the podcast. So it's it's great to have you here.
1: It's been an absolutely amazing journey with the finds at Creswell. It's been it's been really exciting.
0: Cool. So to start off with, just um, just tell us a little bit about the the type of marks that were found at the site and the history of those and and why the discovery at Creswell was. Was
1: so unusual i think in itself the find at creswell isn't unusual um, we do know of other protective marks in cave context particularly those at wookie hole uh, and goat church cavern that have been recorded and published by a friend of mine the finds at creswell do fit quite nicely into that particular narrative about um protective marks in in caves but what's amazing about the Creswell finds is there's a whole palimpsest of graffiti that's scrawled all over the walls. So, as you go into part of the cave, there's lots of name and date graffiti. Um, Some sort of it's quite old, quite a lot of 18th century uh, inscriptions, um, and quite a lot of 19th century ones as well. Possibly a couple of 17th century dates because we've got two 16s. But the more you look at the walls, the more you kind of notice that there are other things going on. And it was a particular concentration of a type of mark that we call uh, conjoined V's that looked like W's or conjoined V's. Um, that were all concentrated in this particular area at the very back of a cave and over a 15, 20 foot drop. And the more you looked at those cave walls and the ceilings, you notice that there were just dozens and dozens of these conjoined v marks and we know from both church context and vernacular building context these marks are construed as being apotropaic in nature so they're there to turn away evil misfortune in the evil eye
0: right okay so um what, what is the cave like itself in terms of where you found the marks is it do you have to go did you have to go
1: quite far into the cave to find them? It is the furthest extent of the cave. Um, there's a stainless steel platform that, that's um, been built inside the cave. It's Robin Hood Cave at Creswell Crags. So it's on the north side. So you go up into these these, these wooden steps into the, into the cave opening itself. And then you um, come onto this stainless steel platform. And there, there's quite a lot of graffiti that you can actually see from this platform. But the little bit of this sort of back cave, this back area is actually away from the viewing platform. So you, so it's just out of the public reach, really. But So we have to go through the railings, probably 10, 12 feet. And there's a little narrow opening. Uh, that's quite interesting in itself because there's a, there's a little um, partial merrill structure on the right hand side as you go in at about floor level. And then there's a little sloping ledge then this big gaping hole into the floor and then that's where it is it's the furthest extent of the back of the cave um 15 20 feet away from the viewing platform and just covered in, in double v's mostly
0: wow okay so it seems it seems connected with that kind of drop in the that sort of hole in the floor is that what you say
1: it's, we're just trying to pick out the archaeology because we know that cave was excavated in the Victorian period by Mello Dawkins et al. And um, we know that, that there was there was recordings locally that people could still access these caves and we know that from the graffiti. Um, oh, I've just lost my thread completely, sorry. <laughs>
0: That's okay. Just start again when you're ready, it's fine. <laughs>
1: Uh, the remarkable thing about, about this cave is there are other caves within Creswell that have been open to people and activity for some time where they don't show this concentration of graffiti. If this particular cave, which is Robin Hood Cave, which ha- has all this protective graffiti. And we're just trying to pick out the archaeology and what narratives we can pick out about why this cave was singled out. Because we're not at this stage entirely certain whether these gaps are in the floor. It's the gap is probably a six foot hole, and then it's just a, it's literally a sheer drop down, and there's a secondary cave to the right of that, which also has has two deep drops um, in the floor, but, but much narrower, literally like chimneys or holes, and there's kind of what appears to be like a rock window looking out from this main chamber into this secondary chamber, and. Um, directly above it is this this big conjoined v So there's something definitely different that's going on in robin hood cave that's not going on in the other two caves that that we've looked at so far um particularly i mean there's a very famous cave which is church cave which has the um, ice age art in it and we're not finding the marks there at all
0: yeah and that's on that's on the other side as well isn't it i believe of the of the yeah,
1: gorge. Yeah, but, the, the two sides of the gorge Um, so there's there's something different Um, the fact that people are also choosing this cave to to do name and place graffiti, tourist graffiti as well is quite interesting Um, I mean know from the archaeology reports that the the other caves were in use from the little village that used to stand at the head of the gorge so one of the caves Mm -hmm. was used as um, a cow buyer or stable they're pretty much devoid of anything interesting. There's maybe one or two marks that, there that we've got to resurvey, and again, some kind of name and date and place graffiti. But it's just the concentration is particularly in Robin Hood Cave, and particularly for for the kind of the, the protective aspect right at the back of the cave over this big drop.
0: Right. Okay. So I guess is it? Are you able to sort of work out who might have been making the marks? Is it? Local people or would it have been something that potentially could have brought people from further afield?
1: Creswell's part of the Welbeck estate, so you've got the the kind of a lot of name and place graffiti. um, I think might be to do with that kind of elite landscape use. So you're going to have elite visitors using the romantic landscape because Stubbs painted a series of paintings using Creswell as a backdrop. So I'm sure some of those visitors there were making their their marks in the cave and there's there's some quite literate marks there, they're quite nicely scribed in. So so you've got that whole narrative going on. Um, I also think that you've got, there used to be a village as well, um, at the head of the gorge. There was a a little mill um, and and maybe just a handful of houses, so maybe 20 or 30 inhabitants. And I'm sure they were engaging with the the caves on, on a fairly regular basis and making the marks. But it is just trying to pick through all the stuff that we've got to try and get all the right narratives. But but as far as we can tell, there's quite a lot of people from, from all different walks of life and social classes interacting and engaging with the space.
0: OK, how, how far back does it go in terms of the earliest marks? Are you, are you able to date date them at all?
1: We've, we've putatively got a couple of 17th century dates, but they, we've got the one six. And then, unfortunately, we, the remainder is quite rub, so we can't quite get that. So I'm going to come up with some um, fancy recording kits to see if we can kind of use um, artificial um, manipulated raking lights, if we can pick out those dates. We've got quite a lot of 18th century dates, including sort of 1717, 1718. 17, and then we've got a lot of later, and then through into the Victorian period as well, and obviously 20th century marks as well, although not so many
0: right okay and in terms of the the the, the history of uh protective marks uh, where does this sort of fit in in the, in the timeline of of that phenomenon
1: as i said there's a wonderful quote from um tim ingold who's um a social um, anthropologist and he said for people inhabit a world that consists in the first place not of things but of lines so from that we can kind of say that as as long as we've had kind of human cognition and evolution then somehow people have always made lines and marks and i'm sure that most of these were probably protective in nature to protect them against, against the world and mediate their own boundaries
0: right okay and so is there a history of in in terms of of why they were doing this kind of thing um is there is there a sort of a cultural history of of exactly what might have been provoking them into doing this kind of thing because it it i imagine it's quite hard to to tell it exactly but it, it seems sort of to go what i'm wondering is is that at, at this time i i imagine most people would go to to church and they would have that in their lives in terms of in terms of guiding them spiritually and this this seems to kind of go alongside that but it's just i'm just wondering what would be the sort of prompt for them to engage in this activity?
1: I think what, what we have, I mean, we know that there are marks that occur in churches from the medieval period onwards, and these marks then. Um, transformed into domestic markings, so we find them in we find them in pubs, we find them in houses. They they tend to be marked the same space. So we're looking at what we consider as liminal space, that betwixt and between, so so doorways and windows, fireplaces, um, and then they seem to lose their Christian narrative, and then just become superstitious marks, like we would cross our fingers or throw coins in a fountain.
0: Right. Okay and and that seems to be what was happening at Cresswell
1: because uh, there is um a little bit of extra folklore that occurs up at Cresswell there's pinhole cave and in this cave there's mm-hmm. a recorded practice of women particularly engaging with the cave in a different way so there was before the excavations in, in the Victorian period there was um a little watery deposit a little um pool if you like right at the back of the cave and the folklore, pra- folklore practice was that a woman would want to find out who her true love was so she would take a pin of her own and put it in this pool and um, at the same time removing a, pu- a pin that was already had been placed there so we know that there's all these different narratives going on at Quaswell and trying to pick out exactly why people were choosing to to mark Robin Hood Cave in, in a special way is proving to be a little bit elusive at the moment. Um, but it's certainly a practice that we know from from elsewhere. And the same sorts of marks are found in the cave context. And there's a lot of caving archaeologists out there, um, both amateur and professional, who are, who are recording these the same occurrences.
0: Right, okay. So do, do you think the the sheer number of marks in the cave is is that just um, a happy coincidence or is it or do you think that there is, if, if, you, if you were to be put on the spot, do you think there is kind of a one reason above above all others?
1: I think there is. I think because of the concentration in this very particular place and it's not seen in any of the other caves that there's, there's definitely something quite different going on. What it is exactly that the local people or people who were, who were visiting the cave were needing to either bind in or protect themselves from. We're still kind of speculating, really. But, but it's it certainly, it, it's a very different phenomena. Um, but I said one that we know from other cave context, because we are finding these same marks. Um, the only other thing that, that is quite interesting is that there's a female figure that's associated with Craswell, who's Mother Grundy. Right. Um, and she's kind of this factitious figure of whom we actually know very little. And it's debatable whether she was real or whether she is just kind of a kind of a, a folkloric trope. But if you kind of look elsewhere, you've got a Wookiee hole that's got its witch. And certainly in my county in Leicestershire, we have Black Annis who lived in caves in the Dane Hills. Yes. And is connected with Richard III and all other sorts of things. So there is this weak correlation between female type figures and cave contexts. So whether there's some underlying story to that, that that, that has some other meaning, we're just kind of examining that now.
0: Right. Okay. And, and what about the, the other caves at the site, Uh, would, would they have, would, I guess people would have had access to them too, I suppose. could they have, could anything in those caves have um, inspired this behavior Or, or is that not likely?
1: I mean, it's possible, because I said, we know that there's the Ice Age art there, and certainly one of the, the figures, um, who's the the goat or reindeer, depending on your interpretation, yeah. has had a little addition of a beard put on it. Right. <laughs> so it's quite well done. Um. So so people knew there were other things that were differently, but there's just, there's something particular going on at Robin Hood Cave.
0: Right, okay. And in terms of activity at the site in general, is prior to this discovery, I guess Cresswell Craig was most famous for artwork that's you know thousands of years old was there yeah how far back does human activity at the site go from the the era that you're talking about how far back does it go in in a more modern context
1: we've got we've got finds um roman period medieval um there's early modern stuff there and then we know from through from the 18th century onwards how how the space was being used particularly because it was part of well back and the Welbeck estate so we know that Stubbs is interacting with the environment you've got people living and working in the area um, so we know a fair bit
0: and, and so with the site that you're what what's next for the for the site you're talking about doing more um, investigation of the of the cave to try and better identify the marks is there is there other work that will be done at the site
1: yes yeah, so I'm, I'm popping up um, backwards and forwards over the summer to actually start to record all the marks properly because there are there are so many and there's such a palimpsest of marks on top of marks that we need to, if there's too many to hand record right. so I'll be bringing up some fancy kit from university to, so that we can manipulate images and put them through artificial light programs so that we can highlight what we actually have and record it all in 3D so we can manipulate a lot of the images to find out exactly what we've got and also count pretty much what we've got because at the moment it's impossible to know. And I think um, John Charlesworth, who's one of the guys up there, I think stopped when he got to about 400.
0: Wow. Okay. And I guess it is, if it's on the north side as well, it would be. It wouldn't be. No, no. It would be. It would have natural light, wouldn't it? Sorry. I was just trying to. I was trying to think about the the kind of how the the caves would be lit by sunlight. So, but um, I guess then they would take torches in there to. To go in and and do and do the marking.
1: That's a really good point. Actually, um, we take all our kind of modern battery-powered torches and and there, and some marks are quite difficult to see. But um, as part of the the tour process that goes on in the caves, um, the visitors are given little electronic candles, so the yeah. little battery-powered lights that you have, and recording there on Sunday. And went in and turned all the modern lighting off um, on on our head torches, and actually, when when you're kind of there with those little battery powered torches, you can actually see the marks in much more detail, and that that's that's quite interesting. And they they have a very different prominence. So presumably that's because they were carved into those kind of light conditions.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing that I I think it's sometimes you can forget how um, how well lit the we we have we have we have a lot of lighting in our in our age. I remember, I remember going to um, Anne Hathaway's cottage in 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 Stratford, um, and, and the, the tour guide was talking about how you know it, now it's you know it's not too far from Stratford. It's everything's very well lit, and um, but back then you know there was hardly any lighting. There was candlelight, but outside of that you know there's um, it was it was almost pitch black, and I imagine that back when these marks are being made i mean we don't know if they're being made in daylight or at night time i suppose if they're being made at night i can i mean that place must have been very um incredibly atmospheric and um perhaps more so than than it we might we might kind of give it credit for
1: absolutely i mean also um because up until mid 19th century the floor level was a lot higher so predating the Victorian excavations floor level was much higher ceilings are much lower so it was was some bits of it pretty much a crawl space and certainly at at the kind of pinch point right at the back where the marks are on the big cavernous drop um it would have been actually quite a squeeze to get to get in there probably quite claustrophobic so you're there probably like your horn lantern or or maybe a couple of candles and it, it would have would have been quite quite atmospheric as you're saying.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing else I wanted to ask, is there, apart from marks, are there is there anything like offerings in that cave, uh, coins or, or, or items like that?
1: Absolutely nothing. And I've been through all the um, Victorian excavation reports and, and what they've got was a lot of kind of Paleolithic archaeology. Um, and they would got evidence of human occupation, and I think they've got a hearth in there. So there was, there was some kind of sheltering going on there in the early modern period, um, probably a bit later into the 18th century. Absolutely no votive offerings at all. Just just some archaeology that we had. Um, the only kind of depositional features that we're finding is the ones from Pinhole Cave, but from Robin Hood Cave, there, there's there's nothing kind of, of of that kind of deposition activity or votive offerings at all. Hmm.
0: So I guess is it is there one potential thing that's happening there is that people are finding uh, items in that cave from a little while ago and, and and reinterpreting them. So could so could the marks be in response to earlier occupation and um, and then they f- they found things in that cave and and given it some sort of a- association with their within their belief system. So I I, I remember. Uh, monuments from the Bronze Age would be reinterpreted you know, thousands of years later by the Vikings, and it, could that be going on? Is there is there this kind of time time frame there that that this sort of could be could be happening?
1: Yeah, we, we're not seeing that kind of temporality in in the Creswell Caves at all. Um, any of the kind of earlier Palaeolithic deposits have, have all been kind of firmly sealed in in their kind of stratigraphic layers. So they wouldn't have been immediately obvious. There've been, I think, various surface finds that have come through through natural weathering. Uh, I think there was there was a, a hyena tooth that had been picked up was before the the excavations in the Victorian period. But but we're not seeing that sort of kind of deliberate kind of marking and using. So it seems to have fallen in and out of view. So for kind of centuries, because um, there there are gaps that we don't have much archaeology for. We've got Roman bits that have been found and we've had some medieval pottery uh, and the really well-known Merrill's board that was found which is a wonderful thing um but apart from that mean, apart from all the wonderful paleolithic archaeology there really isn't that much at all but then we don't know how much was thrown out by the victorians who were only interested in kind of the really prehistoric stuff
0: oh yeah of course okay uh, that, that would be a shame
1: <laughs> yeah um oh, and unfortunately we've, we've got no way of of, of knowing.
0: And in, in terms of the marks themselves, uh, are, they, are they found in other places or, or are they also unique to Creswell?
1: No, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the really helpful things that, that we've got in understanding the usage, is they're the same marks that we're finding in church, churches and vernacular buildings as well and other caves. So it's this very same kind of quite discrete grammar and, and typology of marks that okay. we have. There are certainly a lot of the, the conjoined Vs, which are the most common ones from um, churches and buildings in general. Um, the origin of those is that they were um, part of um, the cult of Mary, so the Marian cult. Mm-hmm. And originally they were kind of Virgo, Virginum, Virgin of Virgins, which was, is a common European uh, name for Mary in, one, in most of her protective guises. But certainly by the time these are being used in Creswell, any Christian context and association with Mary uh, has been lost. But I think what's kind of stuck with that is is that people have, have been seeing and using these marks just purely as a superstitious and folkloric practice. Right, OK. So they just carry on using them. So they were a mark that worked before, a couple of centuries before, as a protective mark. And they've just fallen into this, this. Well, this is what you do if you want to protect yourself or an area or bind something. Is you pop these marks up? Okay.
0: A bit like saying a bit like people who aren't Christians saying Jesus Christ when they're surprised or or um, or bless you when they sneeze. Like I, that's sort of where that, where, it, where yeah, it's passing pretty,
1: to... More probably like, <laughs> Probably more like the bless you. I think is it is it's lost. <laughs> it's lost all kind of its religious context. It's just something you say when somebody sneezes. Right. So it's so it's that kind of thing. You know what the root is, but it doesn't have the same yeah, meaning yeah. anymore.
0: Uh, one, one thing, I mean, I, I first um, heard about this story in an article in, in The Guardian, and uh, one thing that, that was mentioned there is that th- these these marks, like you say, they're, they're usually sort of, they're, they're protective and they also um, represent, they usually be placed around thresholds, but but this is a cave um, where I guess there perhaps isn't what you would obviously see as a threshold i mean in 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 the context of caves themselves that they have a long history of being places where there is something um do you think that with this cave there is that aspect to it because there is there potentially the cave was a threshold and and these marks would put there relative to whatever that threshold was
1: I mean, you can certainly i think interpret caves as being liminal space along with as, as you said the doorways and windows fireplaces those kind of areas so i mean they are kind of this bit between the the known and inhabited world and this kind of wilder and unknown and possibly quite threatening world so they do bridge that gulf between the two um with through looking at my own research, I found that a lot of the marks we've got have got aspects of kind of blessing and consecration in more than anything else, and then over time they've changed into the, being these marks that, that are just commonly interpreted now as just turning away evil, whatever that evil was. And I think we're only just trying to start to unpick the narrative that's going on with Craswell. So at the moment, it's quite difficult to understand what it is, particularly about Robin Hood Cave, that's kind of inspiring all this mark making, because there's, I mean, apart from the, the huge gaping gap in the floor, um, there's nothing particularly the, 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 that kind of strikes you, and apart from Pinhole Cave as well, no other folkloric practices that seem seem to be known in the vicinity.
0: Okay, well, just just to, interesting. What what tell us a bit more about Pinhole Cave.
1: That was the one um, where you have the women going into the cave, okay. And um, there's there's a, a pool at the back where they exchange pins. And they exchange the pins, if you have your pin, you know who your true love will be. It will be the first person that you cast your eyes on as you as you walk out of Pinhole Cave. Oh, okay. That's... I, imagine, I imagine there are perhaps lots of very hopeful locals who are kind of hanging around in the gorge.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a like a modern sort of dating show, I suppose. <laughs> But,
1: but yeah it's kind of the the pin version of tinder
0: yeah i no, i like it i like it um okay so um, outside of kresel just and your your um, study and your work with these kind of these marks um just tell us some of the other places where you found these and 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 some of the more inter- some of the stories that that go along with them
1: um I think often that there isn't particularly a, a deep folkloric practice with them. Um, it's it's a very it's it's a a narrative that was really understood by everybody. So it doesn't matter what your status in life was, whether whether you were the lord of the manor, whether whether you um, were, were some kind of servant or anybody in the middle, you understand understood exactly what these marks were and what they meant. But nowhere are, are these narratives written down. So, I mean, one of my particular interests is taper burns. OK. Um, so the Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire has a particularly fine collection of taper burns, what? which are concentrated around the kitchen area and fireplaces.
0: OK. So what, what is it? I've got there? to go and that over. Sorry. What,
1: what? Taper burn, uh, it's made by a, a candle, and they have a very specific teardrop shape. Mm-hmm. So they take some some concentrated burning of about 45 minutes, experimental archaeology tells me. Um, and again, we, we're trying to unpick the narrative about what they mean. Um, again, there are these marks that I was just described as turning away evil. But I think there's something else as well that's probably a bit deeper than that that's going on. Um, I'm also looking at donington Heath Manor House, which is near Colville in Leicestershire. Mm-hmm. And that that's a little vernacular building um, that we have a lot of history about, and a lot of archaeology about. Uh, founded and built in about 1280 with some later 17th, mid-17th century modernizations on. And we've got different forms there. So we've got compass-drawn circles on, on, a, on a through screen. We've got um, some Christograms in a room that was once interpreted as a, as a chapel. And we've got the conjoined M's as opposed to conjoined V's, although they're part of that same particular narrative. So there's an awful lot of houses, particularly 17th century ones, that that are that are showing all these same patterns of markings. And I particularly look at vernacular buildings, um, but a lot of them, there's no particular folklore that's attached to them. They're just a practice that everybody did.
0: Okay, so I mean, I, I guess um, those times were perhaps a little more fraught with with danger. It's a could it be more of like a like a social response to to the world around them people get more superstitious perhaps when in times of turbulence is could that be perhaps an explanation
1: i mean certainly they we think that they kind of do reflect kind of social anxieties um and and things that are probably occurring on a very local level so if if you had a, a sick cow or the, there was a particularly bad drought or there was some really other adverse weather like particularly wet spring or a wet summer that that kind of interrupted growth patterns and harvest these were all things that you would want to try to mediate and balance and protect both the environment and yourself and others from so i, I just think they, they perhaps used marks as, as a way of trying to make things safe and their world safe right yeah so i, I think they they kind of just controlled all their domestic boundaries um there's a researcher in America who's who's looked at that quite a lot in an American context because um, this practice has also gone over to, to the colonies particularly in Australia right um Canada and particularly the US as well we're seeing the same thing
0: okay well wow, that's, that's that's very interesting but I guess it would wouldn't it really I mean it's not it's not <laughs> I suppose it's not as surprising as you might think
1: but... <laughs> It is, although I think that there's one documentary reference um, in a Christmas song um, by, he was a vehement anti-Catholic called Kirchmeyer, uh, who references a Catholic procession on Twelfth Night around a house with a taper to cast out witches right. and protect the house from misfortune. So I think probably that Germanic custom could easily have been translated into the same things that are, are going on in houses in England and and. I don't think we've got the same things that are happening in in the Celtic fringes, but but certainly in the main part of the body of the UK we've got these same practices.
0: Right, okay. Because because um, they were called uh, the, the marks in Cresswell were, were called witch marks, weren't they? in I think in the the article I read is that is that an inaccurate term?
1: I think yes and no. Um, it's not a very helpful answer to that. I think because they witch marks was a phrase that was picked upon very early by the media right. so it's been now become a phrase that i think everybody knows and understands yeah so if you say that you've got witch marks to somebody or you're researching witch marks people understand what you're talking about
0: okay
1: um but, but from kind of a researching point of view we prefer to call them protective marks because that's what they do and i think that's probably a much more helpful thing to say because it isn't it's a little bit about witches but it's about all the other things that, that, that could be difficult in people's lives. Uh, the Evil Eye was something that was particularly, particularly um, people were particularly frightened of, of, of that. Um, yes. and I mean, also um, King James was writing about um, things being able to regress into houses like imps and demons um, and also fairies. I never thought in a million years I'd be researching fairies as, you know, I'm a proper serious archaeologist, so I don't <laughs> do things like that. Uh, but but actually, the belief in things like fairies and changing children was, um, was quite prevalent. And I think it was published relatively recently that the last uh, death of a changing child was in Ireland, and quite late, and I think it was about the 1890s, there was a man who actually murdered his wife because she thought she was a changing child. It was quite horrific. Uh, so so so. These fear responses can can actually be be, be quite extreme. Um, I'm not saying that's probably probably going on in the 17th century, but certainly the fear that that fairies could abduct children, or um things like they they could affect household tasks like bread making and butter making and brewing. So if your bread didn't rise and and your milk curdled and your mi- and your beer soured, yeah. that could have been fairies and gnomes and all of these other things. So it is this multi-layered folkloric pottage that we're kind of seeing.
0: Yeah, it it seems like it's um it's a it's a way of kind of setting up a, a framework for yourself to kind of prevent these things in the future, isn't it? I suppose you're
1: I I suppose it was it was it was a catch all thing. It was something that you did that could that could protect you and your household and children, adults and animals within that household. Um, from, from basically anything that might harm you in your environment. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I mean, I suppose I suppose at this time that you talk about King James, he, I mean, he he wrote that book, uh, demonology, didn't he? So demonology, and, um, and, and and around that time, there was, I, I suppose, uh, people became more worried about witches and things like that, didn't they? I, 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 there tends to be a, I'm not sure if this is correct, but there tends to be a, a correlation between. Um, the kind of the, 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 the power of the area taking in it, saying something about you know um, which is being bad and and then the people will take note of that. It, se- it seems like the the attitude to which is kind of waxes and wanes with whether the people in power are worried about them or not.
1: I mean, there there are lots of of different theories on on witches and witchcraft. I mean, there's things like the feminist theory of witchcraft, and and there are are lots of narratives that go along with what witches were and what they did.
0: Yeah.
1: But I think the important thing is, um, because I don't particularly research deeply into witchcraft, but from my point of view, I need to understand what it was about witches that made people fearful. And there was a case, I think, it was in France, in a French village, Um, where where there was kind of some kind of scapegoating against a local woman who was accused of being a witch. But it was all to do with about gossip and the way that women gossiped and talked about people and how things escalated. So you end up with a scapegoat and then it kind of goes on from there. And if you think that if you had a a woman in a village who was probably privy to what herbal remedies people needed, she knew secrets. And it's that whole thing about, I think about knowledge is power.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, um, I'm, I'm just thinking of. I think with the Pendle witches, there were there were two families who, who didn't like each other, and that that whole thing basically started from an argument between two families. And 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 in in America, in the Salem witch trials, I mean, that just that was that was just exploded out from from one initial accusation. It it just it's it's, it's terrifying the sort of um, the, the the scapegoating that happened. The, 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 I mean, no wonder. I mean, we call witch hunts. We have the term witch hunt now, don't we? So, we do. Um, it, but um, but <laughs> but back then, I mean, I guess it was it was literally more literally uh, a witch hunt. It it it, it tends to just seem that it's um um somebody who's a somebody who maybe doesn't kind of follow the rules as well as everybody else and gets picked on. More often than
1: not, I think as well, it was an easy accusation to just kind of level anybody who'd made you cross that day. So, I think if there's there's a lot of of primary source material that that looks at witchcraft accusation, and it's things like the instances of children just saying that basically uh, somebody looked at me funny or she pushed me over or she made me feel sick. And then, as you say, it escalates from there, and then all of a sudden, you've got somebody who's probably quite innocent of being accused of witchcraft and ill wishing, and it was very difficult to defend yourself against that kind of superstition and superstitious belief.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree there. So, going back to bring it back to to the cave at, at Creswell, do you do you think that the more you study the marks, the the better idea you might get of of how this potentially could fit in with with them, with that kind of mindset, in, in terms of, in terms of the who was who was scraping marks into the cave.
1: I said, I, I think we've we've got the the two narratives going on. We've kind of got the elite landscape use and the very literate hands in there that are leaving the, the name and place graffiti, and then we've got these other marks. As well, and we've only recently found out that um, the vicar from uh, the church of Clown, who's who's not far from Craswell um contacted uh, the staff at craswell to say that she'd got a church door that was inscribed with with lots of marks that she thought were witch marks and once again we've got that same correlation of the same marks that are cropping up time and time again i mean I, again i don't think they're protective marks i think in that context they're probably more more devotional with perhaps a little bit of superstition thrown in as well maybe votive but we're, we're locally starting to build up the narrative so once we start to kind of identify other places, then maybe we can start to unpick more of the story of what's going on at Craswell. So at the moment, all we know is that, that Robin Hood has this concentration of marks and is being treated very differently to the other caves that are in the gorge.
0: Right, okay. And and I guess as well, the is, is there a, the, will you be able to kind of find out more about the... Will this prompt more investigation of the history of the area that, that might kind of... You might be able to find records of events that might have kind of inspired this sort of behaviour.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've had a little kind of look around at the history, and there do seem to be quite quite long gaps between things. Because we know that um, Wellbeck Abbey was um, a home of the premonstratensians, tensions, and so that there, because potentially the Merrill's board that was found is medieval in date, so we know we has got that kind of.
0: Sorry, what Merrill's, is
1: the Meryl's board? Meryl's board. It's, um, it's a really spectacular find that came out of actually some spoil uh, by the Victorians who'd actually just kind of chucked it out as being of no particular interest because it wasn't Paleolithic. Um, and right. it's, it's, a, it's a, a large piece of rock that's probably, oh, I've never used old me how it's probably about 12, 13, 14 inches length. And it's inscribed with um, what we call a Meryl's or Nine Men's Morris. Yes. So it's originally a gaming board, and we find them on um, windowsills and and and, on, and you know it's a well-known game that's been been played for a long time. But we also find them, particularly in sacred context, in a vertical position, so you wouldn't have been able to play a game on them. Okay. And we know there've been other ones found in like, ecclesiastical context. There's, there's quite a well-known one that came out of Whitby Abbey. Uh, and Creswell has a particularly good one.
0: So has it been, it's, it's been repurposed then, is that, is that right?
1: Um, we, th- we think that it, that it was, probably was a gaming board because it is a horizontal slab of, of rock, although we don't know the context okay. it really came from, apart from it, it was found in spoil. Um, but we have got one, a small one, that's like carved within Robin Hood's cave Mm-hmm. just at the entrance to where there's there's the big drop on, on a kind of about three or four inches above the floor level. Okay. And they are known to have kind of another narrative in that they are known to have a kind of protective feature because they themselves as, as a symbol um, contain liminal space. Right, yes. It's apparently referenced in Shakespeare, and I've just been reading through, trying to pick out. It, they have um, a connection with kind of things like turf mazes as well. So it's part of that whole same typology.
0: Right, okay. So, yeah. And there's okay, a you know, that people yeah. used to
1: play
0: it. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, right. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's um, that's that's really interesting. It's it's, um, it's 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 always interesting to try and... The, the, the thing that really... Um, that really interests me is it's it's a chance to sort of get into the to the mindset and the imagination of of past societies i i i think sometimes perhaps we don't we, we we maybe don't give that aspect of of people's lives that much attention and i i imagine i mean i imagine that their lives must have had just as much um imagination to them and and, and you know and, and Tradition and the the the, the, any, the any would it's 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 fascinating to get this sort of kind of look at this particular aspect of of that society.
1: Uh, I think Slame and their lives are probably very much like ours. It is most of it was just day to day and humdrum and just just an ordinary thing to be lived. But I think in times of stress, whether it was bad harvests, sick cows, sick children um illness or whatever it is then that people did feel the need that they needed to protect themselves and this was a this was a surefire way of doing it things that had probably always worked in the past historically maybe um and so i think people just just kind of began to just make them in these in these buildings and and caves as something that you did and it must have been had some kind of soothing influence on the psyche to know that once you'd made that mark that you'd had some level of protection or you had at least attempt to mediate the world that surrounded you
0: yeah it, it it's kind of it's kind of blending ritual with the the intention behind that ritual and, and that process that you you on a personal level you can help you can that can help to inform your reality i suppose if you if you do it enough to, for it to be to become ritual.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, that that's probably a really fair statement. Um, I mean, and we are starting to in, unpick the meaning of what it meant to, to um, make these marks. Um, I've also been working with um, some of the brothers from Holy Cross Priory in Leicester,
0: mm-hmm.
1: mainly so that I could understand from a, i mean this is in a slightly different context um, is is what it actually meant in a religious context to make some of these marks so i mean particularly yeah. i was thinking about things like the conjoined v's for example within churches mm. and how spiritually it would have how it would have meant that person to, to have made that mark within within a church and and how kind of those that engagement connects that kind of people and marks and buildings and trying to understand if what that absolute faith was in making that mark and i think if i understand that christian narrative that goes along with those marks it's then easier for me to look at house and cave context to understand a little bit of how that that same kind of need for preservation still carried on even though it was no longer a christianized tradition right and and i have to say, say the the the, the brothers have been really helpful because they they like a, a good theological argument so it's been been more fun than i thought
0: <laughs> no no that's just, that that sounds fascinating it's it's there must be there must be so much that yet to be interpreted
1: it isn't it and it's and i think it's probably how how deep you take that interpretation as well um, so you know, I, I have had some quite in-depth conversations and feeling very out of my depth, I have to say, when it comes to Christian doctrine and theology, um, particularly, I mean, uh, the rather lovely Father Matthew, who, who I've been working with, um, talks a lot about Thomas Aquinas, and, and I'm afraid I'm woefully ignorant and do have to bow <laughs> superior knowledge. But, but it is, it, 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 I have been quite fascinated by that whole interplay of religion and spirituality. It's a bit outside my own personal remit, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, that's fair enough. I mean, I guess you know part of being part of being at a monastery is you know you do a lot of learning and reading, don't you? I I imagine it's part of being there is to the chance to kind of ruminate over over the import the important questions.
1: <laughs> I see. They're they're the Dominicans, so they are particularly a, a, a teaching order, so and oh, okay. they have a reputation for liking good theological debate.
0: Cool. Yeah. No. I mean, they they brew beer as well, don't they, monks? So it's a, it's a good mixture, I suppose.
1: Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are the um, Cistercians out at, or well, the Trappists out at most. Oh yes, right. Yeah. Tint sorry. I'm Tint just.
0: Meadow, uh, I'm
1: yeah,
0: just <laughs> yeah. I'm just assuming that all monks do that. Sorry.
1: <laughs> Apparently, it particularly that particular sect uh, is renowned for their brewing.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, lots of um. One thing that I always find interesting is that um, a lot of um, ghost monks, monks. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Maybe that's something to do with maybe they got unfinished business and they haven't learned everything yet, and that's why they're still here. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think Grace Drew Priory hasn't it has a, a certainly I think it's a nun um, who's supposed to be seen there. Yeah, I think yeah yeah. I think every kind of monastic site has has at least one ghostly ghostly apparition of, of a brother. I don't see why they would really. I would have hoped they'd have, they'd have moved on with their theology and, and things yeah, you are being hope so. A, uh... <laughs> but again, d- despite where Creswell is and the fact that you had Welbeck Abbey in the background, that there's no legend associated w- with any kind of ghostly or spectral monks and, and the site at all. In fact, no, none. In fact, in fact, surprisingly, apart from Mother Grundy, surprisingly little folklore that, that that's kind of concentrated around the caves.
0: Yeah, I guess that, 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 is, that is surprising. Um, so um, in terms of this discovery, what do you think it holds for the, for the future of the site? Is it, it Because I, I guess Creswell Crags is mostly known for the, for the Paleolithic art, but, but this seems to be you know, something that could potentially be just as important. Does it bode well for the future of the site in terms of
1: what could happen there? I, th- I mean, I mean, because the publicity was only <clears throat> really released, excuse me, <coughs> released last month, so we kind of had a mid-February 14th and 15th press release, is it's generated absolutely massive interest at the moment. And I think for Creswell, what it does is it, it expands its interpretive horizons. So you, you're now kind of able more to tell the whole story of the site. So you've got everything from the ice age wonderful ice age art and some of them at the portable finds that they have that you're now looking at this whole historic narrative that tells about how um creswell and the caves and the gorge were used through time and i think what it does i think it enables more dots to be joined up and then it kind of brings it up to the present as well because because it's been had that association of the witch marks um, it's generated that interest as well from things like the pagan community and people who are interested in in ghosts and the supernatural, even though there is absolutely no evidence of anything like that at all. Mm. Um, but but it, it and it's also in a way creating new narratives about about the landscape use in the caves. So I think that there's just so many positive spin-offs of Craswell that they can can exploit for for kind of future visitor figures and also to be able to tell a much more full story of what's been happening there.
0: No, it's definitely exciting because I mean it wasn't too long ago that they found the the Paleolithic artwork. Is it? Is about like, maybe fifteen years 2000s,
1: ago? Yeah, it's two thousand four, two thousand five. So, and and it, I mean, I I stood um, in the cave and and looked at the Ice Age art, and it's kind of I looked at, it, I'm like, I can't actually see it. So here I am, archaeologist, <laughs> can't spot it at all. And then you just kind of tilt your head, and all of a sudden it just kind of you get your focus. And then there it is, and it's. I, I do genuinely find it mind-blowing. I know I'm, I'm kind of proper geeky and archaeological, but there is that's just great. something quite amazing about gazing on something that that has that degree of antiquity to it, that's kind of been made with human hands, and it's just yeah, you know, I get quite blown away by it actually.
0: No, I know. I know. I, I, I totally agree. Um, I've I, I've been there. I, I went a few years ago, and it's right. It, it is. There is something about it that it just kind of sort of the power it has to connect you to something that happened a very long time ago is is amazing
1: it is because i mean i mean i i have no kind of in fact i actually know very little about about um cave art in general and the and and the ice age in general because it's not my specialism but as you say there is something just that really does strike some kind of far back cognitive memory that you, as you, as you kind of interact with it. And it is and so at the moment when it kind of, I got my eye in and it just kind of then emerged out of the shadows. I kind of, I think I, li- I did literally take a breath.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I can, I, I can understand why. <laughs> so, um, how, what, what does the future bode for you at the site? How, how much longer will you be, um, working, working at the cave?
1: Um, I'm kind of doing this um, as well as my, my current research as well. So I'm going to be dipping in and out of Crestwell over the summer and trying to record as much of it as we can so we can really get a handle of what we've actually got there because we know there are hundreds upon hundreds of marks. So it's going to be a lots of time recording um, and seeing exactly what we've got and trying to quantify exactly what we've got. Then hopefully we can get some 3D modelling done that can then go on exhibitions and on the website and things so that more people can access what there is there so i've I've got a really busy summer coming up with with help from um another person called linda who actually did wookie hole and goat church so she's helping me record some stuff as well so we're actually up there on thursday to to get a real feel for things and see exactly what we need to do oh brilliant i think it's going to keep me gamefully occupied for quite some time (laughs) i can imagine well,
0: Alison, this has been fantastic. Thank you thank you so much for coming, coming on the podcast. It's been great.
1: Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: If, if people want to find out more about the site, um, where's the best place for them to find out more information?
1: Uh, Craswell Crags have got a, a, a really good website, um, so all the phone numbers and contact numbers are on there for people, um, opening times and prices, and plus you can also book on cave tours as well, for which there is one that is... Um, Specifically to go and look at the witch marks in the cave, and I just realised I use the term witch mark. Then
0: I know it's fine,
1: <laughs> but, but it's just. It, it I,
0: I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to use the term witch marks for the episode title, just because I have to admit it, it does sound it does sound cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, a, yeah cause kind of a marks is just an absolute mouthful, um, and protective marks people don't really get what you understand what you're actually talking about. Right. Um, but as researchers, we kind of get a bit cringy now about witch marks because we kind of go, oh, it's so much more than witches. Yeah. Um, but so, so, I mean, I think we're just trying to move the narrative on a bit, I think, and, and try and get that the, there are lots of other things going on with these marks as well, and they probably weren't necessarily about witches, but they were kind of a bit of a, a spiritual kind of catch-all, which, which just helped protect people generally.
0: Right, okay. But well, no, that's brilliant. But, yeah, um, again, thank you thank you so much for being on the
1: podcast. Thank you.
0: For me, the most fascinating thing about the discovery at Creswell is why were the marks being made? Caves have long been seen as liminal areas, thresholds to otherworldly places, and it seems that this must have something to do with what was happening. What's unusual, though, is that there seems to be little folklore or legend connected to the Robin Hood cave, save its rather romantic name. However, with a nearby cave named Mother Grundy's Parlour, and folk customs happening at Pinhole Cave, it seems likely that there was something unusual happening that focused the superstition in that one place. There's a great quote about the protective marks at Creswell from John Charlesworth, who works there interpreting the heritage of the site. These are places where supernatural forces in an untamed non-human environment could be at work. Local people are in the jaws of this monstrous landscape. That's an imaginative notion, but I do think it is an accurate one. For the most part, we live in safety and comfort, away from most of the dangers that can threaten us. This wasn't the case hundreds of years ago, however, and people find ways to help themselves cope with forces outside of their control, be they natural or supernatural. What we have at Creswell is a fascinating mystery, which Alison and her colleagues are working to understand. I'm sure the site will keep revealing more secrets that might help provide some of these answers. There will be a link to the Creswell Crags website in the show notes. I highly recommend visiting if you get a chance. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can email someothersphere at gmail.com. And the podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher and Podbean. Thank you so much for listening.